0: From the Amazon to the Himalayas, God is accomplishing His mission. Welcome to Amazon to the Himalayas podcast, stories and conversations with the global church and for
1: the global church about the mission of God in the world. And now here is your host, Paul Aiken.
0: This is Amazon to the Himalayas podcast. I'm your host, Paul Aiken. Our guest today is Vance Pittman. Vance and his family live and serve out west in Las Vegas, Nevada. Vance is the founding and lead pastor of Hope Church in Las Vegas, and he's also a longtime friend. And so I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Vance, welcome to the podcast.
1: Paul, thanks for having me, man. It is such an honor to be able to hang out with you today. And let me just correct you right out of the gate. It's Las Vegas, Nevada, not Nevada. Nevada. The day you move to Las Vegas, they teach you that, and you will know if you're local or tourist based on how you pronounce it. So now you can say, you know, it's Las Vegas, Nevada. But man, it is great to be here with you today.
0: Thank you. Thank you for the correction there on Nevada. There All you right. go. Vance, maybe just start by sharing with our listeners how you came to faith in Christ, your salvation testimony.
1: Yeah, obviously, if you hear my accent, not originally from Las Vegas born and raised in Alabama, but not from the traditional kind of Bible Belt Christian family in the sense that my parents are first-generation Christians, so neither sets of my grandparents or great-grandparents were followers of Christ. My mom and dad came to Christ in high school, met each other, got married. My brother and I were born. My dad was a pastor, so I did grow up in a pastor's home, but not a long line of Christianity in our family. Because growing up in a pastor's home exposed the gospel at an early age, but like a lot of kids in the Bible Belt, you know, could answer the questions, went through the process, got baptized. But it wasn't until I was a freshman in college that I genuinely came to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I had done the church thing, but up until my freshman year of college, church was a part of my life like everything else was a part of my life, sports, friends, school, church. And when I got to college, I had gone through a couple of years in high school into college of just kind of trying to find what could fill the emptiness on the inside. And after kind of exhausting some a lot of those things, a little bit like Solomon-esque in the Bible, you find the vanity of those things. My parents had taught me enough and I'd heard the gospel enough that I knew where to turn. And so as a freshman in college, knelt down beside my bed in my apartment and surrendered the control of my life to Christ. And I'll never forget the next morning I woke up and I opened my Bible. And it was the first time in my life that I opened my Bible, not because it's what you had to do to be a good Christian. I opened my Bible because I genuinely wanted to know the God that I'd just given my life to. And it just was an entirely different thing for me. Like Up until then, I had religion. But in that moment, I enjoyed for the first time in my life, what God really invited us into. And that's an intimate, personal love relationship with himself. And I've not been perfect since then, but man, God has been continually drawing me into deeper fellowship with himself and conforming me from the inside out to the person of Jesus. So that's where it happened for me was a freshman in college.
0: Praise the Lord for his salvation. Amen. you, You mentioned that you, Grew up in Alabama and now you're in Vegas. So maybe just tell us that story. How did a, a boy from Alabama get to Vegas?
1: Isn't that what happens for everybody, right? I mean, you grew up in small town Alabama and you wind up in Las Vegas. No, it's funny, Paul, you asked because for me, when I came to Christ about a year later, I surrendered to ministry but didn't want to do ministry. I mean, I didn't have any bad taste in my mouth. My mom and dad were not perfect people, but they were the same imperfect people at church and at home. So they lived an authentic life in front of me, and so I didn't. I wasn't one of those preachers' kids that hated the church. I loved the church. I just wanted to make more money. Than my dad made, so I wanted to do something different. So I went to college to do radio, television, and film. I was working full time radio on air. I love the whole podcast thing because it kind of takes me back to the beginning. But yeah, I work radios and on air personality. And I was doing that, and God began to stir in my heart this call to ministry. And long story short, I surrendered to that, and I did 10 years of ministry, 10 years of vocational ministry in the Bible Belt, about half that as a student pastor, about half that as a senior pastor, senior executive pastor. And kind of towards the end of that 10-year run, I was pastoring a church in a small town in Tennessee that exploded in growth. But you know what that's like. And when a church in a small town grows, not everybody's excited about that. And we had 13 non-rotating deacons that were really the pastors of the church. I was just a weekend preacher. They didn't like the growth it outgrew their power, power struggle, collision. long story short they asked me to leave. I resigned deeply wounded my wife and I wanted nothing to do with church or the ministry. I wanted to quit, go do something else. I wasn't quitting God but I knew I could get my paycheck from somewhere else and still be involved in his activity. I'd have to work at a church. but my dad's church in Memphis, was the only person that offered me a job. And so I had to f- provide for my family, I had two little kids at the time. And I took a job with my dad's church in Memphis as his senior associate pastor. Church experienced a lot of growth for about two years. And everybody assumed I would be the next pastor at Kirby Woods when my dad retired there in Memphis. But I was being discipled by a guy named Clyde Cranford and Clyde had taught me to pursue Christ's life in the gospels. And what he meant by that was, as we read the Gospels, obviously, there's the historical narrative that is the foundation of our faith, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But also, you and I, the Christian life is not us living for Jesus. It's Jesus living his life in and through us. And as we read the Gospels, we see stuff in Jesus that's not in us, and the Holy Spirit works in us to conform us into his image. And so I'm reading the gospel one morning in Luke chapter four in uh, 1999 September, minding my own business as the senior associate pastor of Kirby Woods Baptist Church in Memphis, and I get to Luke 4:43, and here's what it said: The gospel said, Jesus said, "I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose." And that morning I saw something in Jesus that wasn't in me. I saw a passion for the kingdom of God. And at that point in my life, to be honest, I couldn't have even told you what the kingdom of God was other than some random seminary definition. And secondly, a passion for the kingdom to be expanded in other cities. And to be totally transparent, I'd never even thought about my own city. I was really consumed with the church. If the church was good, I was good. If we were growing, I was fine. If the offerings and attendance was good, I was good. I didn't think about the city. And man, I saw this passion in Jesus for cities and the kingdom to be expanded in cities. I went and got my wife. We knelt down in the living room and said, Lord, yes. We don't know where, we don't know when. And truly, Paul, we thought we were surrendering to go overseas. The next thing I did was pick up a phone call, the IMB. And back then, 20 plus years ago, because my wife didn't have 60 hours college credit, I didn't get past the phone call. Like they said, you're not qualified to even apply and basically hung up the phone. Thank God the IMB has progressed and we're in a new day now. But I was a good Southern Baptist. Felt like God was calling me to cities to expand his kingdom. The IMB said, no, I didn't know what to do. So we just sat on it for two weeks and just prayed. And two weeks later, Johnny Hunt, my mentor from First Woodstock, Johnny called me and said, Vance, our church in Woodstock is starting a church in the fastest growing city in North America, Las Vegas, Nevada. And God's put it on my heart you're to be a pastor of that church. And I'm telling you, Paul, as soon as the words Las Vegas rolled off his lips, we knew God had called us to Las Vegas. I mean, you couldn't have picked the city further off my radar. Where I'm from in Alabama, you don't go to Las Vegas. And if you do, you don't tell anybody. Where I'm from, they don't think Las Vegas is hell, but they think you can smell it from here. But as soon as he said it, we just knew God had called us to the point that we did something I don't recommend that church planters do, but we actually resigned our position in Memphis, began the process of moving to Las Vegas, and we'd never even visited the city. We'd never been here one time, but we just knew Anything other than us relocating our lives to the city was going to be disobedience to God. And so in December of 2000, we loaded everything we owned in the parking lot of a a First Baptist Church Woodstock into a green Dodge minivan and drove across the country. And we landed in Las Vegas, Nevada and just celebrated 20 years here as a church. My 20th was last December, but we celebrated 20 years as a church in September.
0: Wow. That's an amazing story and just grateful for Yeah, your willingness, your obedience to step forward in faith with many, many unknowns and now looking back and seeing what the Lord's done over the last 20 years is is quite impressive.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of ways to answer that question. I mean, when you ask the question, what makes Las Vegas unique, immediately what comes to mind is what the world knows Las Vegas as, and that's Sin City. Now, having been to New Orleans multiple times, I think New Orleans owes us an apology. Because I think they ought to have the label Sin City, at least we package ours pretty, you know, in Las Vegas. But Las Vegas is pretty much a microcosm of the Western United States. The Western United States, in my opinion, and there are people, missiologists, who would disagree with me on this, but it's the last pre-Christian culture left in America. The New England states are all post-Christian. The Bible Belt is predominantly becoming post-Christian. The Western United States is the last pre-Christian culture. There's never been a great movement of God in the West. The closest thing we ever got was the Jesus movement of the 1970s. But all the great awakenings, all the great revivals all happened on the East Coast, up and down the West Coast. And Las Vegas is one of these cities. Every major metropolitan area is 90 to 95 percent non-Christian. 90 to 95% non-Christian. And that's, not, I'm not talking about D-church. I'm talking about people that have never heard the gospel. When we first moved to Las Vegas, our neighbor across the street had a, a son that was eight years old. Our son started playing with him, brought him over to the house. And I remember them sitting down one day in a little kid's thing we were doing and asking the question, what songs about Jesus do you want to sing? And here's this eight-year-old boy. And his honest question was, who's Jesus? Like, He'd never heard of Jesus. He'd never heard the name Jesus. He didn't know anything. He had no context. My neighbor, two doors down, college graduate in America, whose husband was in the military, they start coming over to our home, and we invite them over for an Easter thing we're doing at our home. And they knew we'd come there to start a church. And Here was her honest question. What does Easter have to do with the church? She had no context as a college graduate in America that Easter was connected to the narrative of Christianity. She knew nothing of the death, burial, and resurrection. And that's true all over the city of Las Vegas. There is this massive lostness. I feel like in many ways, I pastor in first century Corinth, where it's all this paganism and hedonism and materialism and the availability of everything you can imagine. And people are lost, but here's the good news. They're lost and they know it. Like It's not like the Bible, but where you gotta convince somebody that they're lost. Now, out here, people know they're lost. They know they don't know God. They know they don't know how to know God. And they're open. Anybody in Las Vegas, if you start talking to them, you'll get their, they wear their life story on their sleeve. Like they'll tell you everything in a matter of minutes. And even if they know you're a pastor, there's no filter for that. So they're not like, oh, well, I can't say that. He's a pastor. No, they'll just dump it out, man. Like if you take the city of Las Vegas, in the city of Las Vegas, there are places on the map where I could draw a box. And inside that box would be 150,000 people and not one evangelical Christian church at all. I'm not talking about Russia or China or Uzbekistan. I'm talking about the God bless America, major cities up and down the West Coast where there are pockets of 100, 200, 300,000 people and not one gospel centered church at all that's the lostness of the west coast that's the lostness of the city of las vegas but there's also a a beauty of that because i now have a church we've seen in our 20 years we just celebrated this we've now baptized over 4,000 people into our church alone that have come to know christ and so many of them from just backgrounds and it's so messy i'll give you this story so i baptized a lady three or four or five years ago now But she's a typical Las Vegas story. She was in her 70s. She'd come to know Christ, hard Vegas lifestyle. You fill in the blank with what that means. And I'm about to baptize her. And we baptized at that time, then we were outside baptizing on a screen inside. And I said, Ma'am, is it your testimony that you've come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And she said, Hell yes. And my immediate reaction was to get her underwater as quick as I could before she said anything else. But here's the reality what she really said was hallelujah. She just didn't have another word for it. Like all she knew to say was that. Like It's like sometimes we so read the Bible with sanitized, baptistic eyes, we forget that Simon Peter literally cussed out a girl around a campfire denying Jesus. There is some messiness in the scripture. You read 1 Corinthians, there's some messiness in the church in Corinth, but it's because people were being redeemed out of the darkness of the lives that they were living, But there's a purity about it, too. When they learn the gospel and when they hear the truth, there's a sold-out surrender to that. So like our church on Sunday, nobody comes to go home. If we had a three-hour service, they'd all stay. Like they genuinely come to church to be at church. We have 54 languages in our fellowship, and they don't come to leave. They come to worship, and they come to hear from God, and they come to be with God. So there's a contagiousness about being in this city that's also there.
0: That's really good. You talked about your church. You talked about some of these locations in the West where there's a lack of church. You have kind of a two decade snapshot that you've seen personally there in Vegas, but maybe let's think through like the last 30, 40 years or so. Can you just briefly tell us about the state of the evangelical church there? Are you encouraged with how it's been growing? Are you discouraged? What is the, the state of the church, particularly there in, in Vegas?
1: Yeah. So if you think about this globally, only China, India, and Indonesia have more lost people living within their borders than the United States of America. Now, that's partially because of the population size of those four countries. They're the four some of the four largest countries in the world. But America is literally the fourth largest numerical lost nation on planet Earth. Almost 50% of that lostness is in the Western mountain and Pacific time zones, the Western United States. So there are 75 million people who live in the mountain and Pacific time zone with 90 to 95% lostness. The encouraging part for me is one of the things that I'm a part of through our relationship with NAM and the Sin Network is the church planting that's happening in the West. Out of our church alone, we've had the opportunity to plant and partner with 74 churches up and down the West Coast in major cities. So I'm encouraged, but the lostness is overwhelming and the need is great.
0: Okay. So you kind of laid some of that out, which is really helpful obviously the challenges abound. You talk about, you know, people have access to anything and everything that they want, yeah. materialism, idolatry, you know, it's all the same stuff that we have across the U S but maybe it's just amplified in a place like Las Vegas. I want to flip the question around and ask, you know, over the last two to three years you've seen the Lord obviously do all kinds of things. People are are praying for you, for your church, for your ministry. So maybe can you tell us some of the more encouraging things that you've seen the Lord do over the last two to three years?
1: Yeah, in the last two to three years, we've seen God open doors in our city like never before. So we've been engaged in the West and the world from the very beginning. The struggle for me was we never could really get this city strategy. Now, we had begun with engaging the city with the gospel. We'd begun making disciples in our city. But I knew there was some kingdom causes in our city that God desired to see transformed that we'd not really been able to get our foot in the door. In 2015, God really convicted us about that. And we launched a big campaign in our church called Next. And a big piece of the Next campaign was about us launching and engaging and unleashing a full city strategy that would target five areas. It would target the fight against human trafficking, foster care, poverty and homelessness, the educational domain, and reconciliation and justice issues. So we launched in 2017 this initiative, and over the last three to four years, I can't even tell you, it's like gone from zero to a hundred. We've literally been invited to the table at the highest levels in the foster care situation, I mean, in essence, the foster care community and the governing officials have given us the keys and said, "You drive the car of engaging in the foster community." We've trained hundreds. We were the first off-site training center for the state of Nevada to do training for foster care in partnership with the Department of Family Services. We've trained over five hundred families. We have two stores where we you can come and you can get clothes, you can get supplies, you can get as long as you're a foster. It's just God has given us so much favor when we thought we would never have that. And we're having conversations about the gospel because when you get involved in the foster care community, that's a broad thing. Not everybody involved in foster care are Christian. Not everybody involved in foster care are what you and I would call biblical traditional families. And so you wind up locking arms with a lot of people who don't share our biblical gospel centered worldview but we've gotten to have incredible gospel conversations. We have people that attend our church every week who do not believe in Jesus, but they do believe in what we're doing in foster care. And so they're sitting under the teaching of the gospel and overwhelmed by the love of Christ through his people to the point that it's given them an ear to hear the truth. That's one area, the fight against human trafficking. We now have a two-year in-house residency program for juveniles. We're the only juvenile program in the state of Nevada and Las Vegas is one of 17 cities in the world. If you're trafficked anywhere in the world, the likelihood the Justice Department says you're gonna wind up in Las Vegas. And there was nothing for juveniles. So if you were a juvenile, got caught trafficked, you're just dumped back out in the street because they can't arrest you, they can't put you in prison, you're a juvenile. So they dump you back out in the street, where do you wind up? Trafficked again. So we now have a two-year in-house residency program that is in partnership with the governing officials and Clark County judicial system where they're recommending these girls to us. We walk with them for two years, teach them job skill, life training, get them their GED, introduce them to Jesus. We've seen girls come to Christ. We've seen families put back together. And all of this, people would say, man, Las Vegas. And you got to understand because in the context of the West, the West sees the church like the Bible belt would see a mosque. In my hometown of Alabama, If the Muslims came in and said, we're going to start a mosque, man, the banks would raise an eyebrow. The local schools would be concerned. That's the church in the West. When the church says we're going to do something, the West looks at us like this is some kind of cult. These are some kind of weirdos. So the fact that anybody would think that we would ever have an open door and we're being invited into meetings and strategy sessions at the highest levels in city governance. And that's totally the favor of God, opening doors for gospel advance in a city where we're seeing real kingdom transformation take place.
2: Reaching a specific people group with the gospel demands specialized training and a global vision. Southern Seminary supports these ministry goals through theological education that is trusted for truth. A degree in missiology from Southern Seminary provides students with the biblical foundation and theological training necessary to take the gospel into all the world. The program prepares graduates to serve as missionaries, church planters, and ministry leaders anywhere in the world. To learn more about Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, and doctoral degrees available through the Billy Graham School at Southern Seminary, go to sbts.edu bgs or go to the episode notes for this podcast and click the link to the Billy Graham School at Southern Seminary. There, you'll learn how listeners to this podcast can save $40 when applying for classes. The web address again is sbts.edu slash bgs.
0: Amen. Praise the Lord for the work he's doing there. I want to ask you to talk some about the city. I mentioned to you before that I've been interviewing folks who are serving in, in different places around the world in cities. And I'm convinced that one of the key areas that we're going to have to figure out and be successful in for ministry for the future is cities, urban areas. So in your opinion, you live in a well-known city. What do you believe it takes to do faithful ministry in urban cities, urban areas like Las Vegas or highly populated areas in the West?
1: I'm going to talk specifically about that in the context of North America because I think in North America, we have gotten our missiology way wrong. If you look at typical church planting missiology in north america it's three boxes and if you can imagine those of you that are listening and not able to see this i want you to imagine three boxes one on top of the other the top box says plant a church the middle box says make disciples and the bottom box says engage the city with the gospel so you got plant a church so you can make disciples and then engage the city with the gospel Most church planning missiology in North America starts with the top box. You move into a city, and the first thing a church planner is taught to do is look for a school, a movie theater, a strip mall, find you a place to meet. And then you send out a mailer, you buy you a sleek pulpit, you tell everybody in the community why your church is going to be cooler than the church they've been at before, and you invite them to come and you start a church. Then you move to box two. You try to begin to to establish discipleship pathways to disciple the people that are now attending your church so that ultimately, I mean, we're good people. We we want to do missions. We can do mission. We can then build ministries to engage our city and other cities with the gospel. That's most church planning missiology in North America. It's the way most churches are planted. It doesn't start with a city. It starts with a church service. And it's why most churches in North America are homogenous because we establish a culture within a church service that attracts one culture and one segment of a population. The problem with that missiology, it does work in a lot of your cities in North America because you can attract the crowd that way. The problem with it is it's not a biblical missiology. And not only is it not a biblical missiology, it's not a cross-cultural missiology. And here's why that's important. I think if it's not a cross-cultural missiology, It's not God's design for his church because the Bible wasn't written for North America. The Bible was written for the peoples of the earth. So if it doesn't work everywhere, why are we using it anywhere as a missiology to engage cities with the gospel? For example, you'd never go to Afghanistan, rent you a storefront, send out a mailer. That's not going to happen. Why? Because you're going to get your head cut off if you do that. The true biblical missiology starts the other way. It starts with a city. We've got to stop thinking I'm a pastor in a of a church in a city. I'm a missionary in a city to engage that city with the gospel. And when you start with a city, then disciples are made. As you engage city with the gospel, disciples are made, and then churches are born as a byproduct of disciples being made through the engagement. It's exactly what Paul did throughout the New Testament. Take Acts 16 when he went to Philippi. He starts at the riverbank. Why at the riverbank? Because it's where the people are. And he begins to engage people with the gospel. Lydia, hears the gospel, comes to faith in Christ, invites Paul to her home. Her whole household comes to Christ. He begins to disciple them as part of his discipleship strategy, takes them back out in the streets, and they're sharing the gospel, engaging the city with the gospel. A demon-possessed girl comes to faith in Christ. She goes back to the home, begins to be discipled. Because she came to Christ, they throw Paul and Silas in jail. While they're in jail, they lead a jailer to Christ. And they're just engaging the city wherever they are, and disciples are being made. And guess what? Boom. Church at Philippi is born. There's not anywhere in the Bible that says, go plant a church. As a matter of fact, Jesus said just the opposite. He said, I will build my church. Here's the commission you and I are to go in the cities and nations and make disciples. We're to engage cities and nations with the gospel so that disciples can be made and churches can be born. And I don't care where the urban context is, where the metropolitan area is, that is the missiology we have to get back to. I believe the gospel is the power of God to change lives. And if we simply engage cities with the gospel, the promise of God is that disciples will be made and then churches will be born. And here's the beauty of this. Then the church becomes a reflection of the community. When I moved to Las Vegas, I moved here with two other guys. Myself and two other guys were our original team, three white guys, two from Alabama, one from Tennessee. Not a picture of multi-ethnic ministry. Three white dudes from the Bible Belt get to Las Vegas, I now pastor a church of about 4,000 people with 54 languages represented in our fellowship. How does that happen? Here's how it happens. Our zip code that our church is in is one of the most diverse zip codes in the United States of America. When you start with the city, the gospel is no respecter of persons. When you start with the city, the church becomes a reflection of the community, which means this, if the church that I'm pastoring doesn't look like the community that I'm in, I need to ask myself a very serious question about my missiological advance of the gospel in my community, because if my church doesn't look like my community, then I'm not unleashing the power of the gospel to redeem those and bring them into the family of faith. So I think that's the first question. We have to deal with this thing of missiology and understanding that it starts with a city. My original call, I shared with you earlier, Jesus said, I must preach the kingdom to the other cities also. We got to start with cities and build strategies to engage cities with the gospel that result in disciples being made and then churches are born. Before we ever launched our first public worship service at Hope, we made 185 disciples in the city. So we had 185 disciples before we ever had a church service because we started with a city, engaged, made disciples, and a church was born. Then the second question we have to answer is, what is a disciple? If the goal is to make disciples, we've got to be able to answer that question. And in the church in America, We typically answer it with one of two questions, what a person does or what a person knows. A disciple has all the right information or a disciple does all the right things. And if you measure it with information, what it looks like is a discipleship pathway that's all about making sure everybody can answer all the same theological Bible questions. And when you do, you're confirmed as a disciple or I come out of a more baptistic model where it's about what you do. And if that's what it looks like, you teach somebody all the right things to do, all the wrong things that they're not to do. And when you do all the right things and you don't do all the wrong things, man, you're a faithful disciple. The problem is both of those fall so short of the discipleship metric in the gospel. The discipleship metric in the gospels is a relational term. It's about an attachment to one's teacher. It's about devotion. And following Jesus is really about this relationship with God that spills into my relationship with my brothers and sisters in Christ and then overflows in relationships to people that don't know God at all. So a right missiology for engaging cities and a right discipleship understanding about what a disciple is and how you make them, I think are the two key components to faithful ministry in any urban context.
0: That's really helpful. You know, I'm here at Southern. We have students that the Lord has brought from all over the world, people who are here to train, to be equipped, to prepare for ministry. So I'm curious, what would you say to a Southern student that's considering moving out West to engage in gospel ministry after graduation? Why should they consider the West?
1: Man, that is a ball on a tee for me. And I can't wait to answer that question. I want to spend 30 minutes answering it, but I can't do that. Let me just say this. If you love the Bible, you'll love the West. When you read the first century church, when you read the letters in the New Testament, that's exactly what it's like to do ministry in the West. The gospel is reaching pagan, lost people, they're being redeemed and changed and you're getting to disciple them, not having to teach them what church is not because of where they come out. They don't have any experience. they have no background. It's like living out the book of Acts, but everybody speaks English and there's restaurants and Walmart and shows like it's the beauty of all the cross-cultural work through the IMB, but you're doing it in, at home. It's in America. And the opportunity to see that kind of radical life change is so contagious. I wish everybody could experience what it's like to see people come out of the West, come to Christ, be discipled, join in the mission and engage in the expansion of God's kingdom. And here's the other thing. I said this earlier. I believe if there is hope for another great awakening, it's the Western United States. We've Mm -hmm. launched a vision here to start 300 churches over the next 10 to 15 years. We're at 74 so far, but 300 churches. And the whole goal is that those 300 churches would plant 10 churches each. And that each of those churches would reach 250 people for Christ. If they do that, that's 750,000 people. Why is that significant? That's 1% of the Western United States. We're asking God over the next 15 years to give us 1% of the Western United States. That could then be in the next 15 years, if those 3,000 churches plant 10 churches each, now you're talking 30,000 churches, and you're talking over 10% of the Western United States. I want you to think about that. We're part of the Southern Baptist Convention. Southern Baptist Convention is roughly 45,000 churches. I'm saying we're asking God in the next 30 years to start 30,000 churches in the Western United States. Can we do that? No, but a movement of the Holy spirit of God can, but the greatest need to ministry in the West is laborers. Like too many people that are in seminary, like there are Southern and others. They want to stay where it's comfortable. They want to stay close to mom. They want to stay where they can get an easy job. Listen, but I'm telling you the opportunities in the West are incredible and I'd give my life to it all over again, having started 20 years ago.
0: That's helpful. That's good to hear. This next question is a little bit more personal. It's a question I ask everybody that I interview. The question is Vance day after day, week after week and month after month, what keeps you there in that place? And why are you giving your life to this work?
1: That's a really good question. And let me, before I answer it, let me go back to what I just said about the West. If any of the listeners, have an interest in church planting in the West or engaging in the West in ministry, because now we've planted churches that now need staff members, man, shoot me an email. You can email me just Vance at HopeChurchLV.com. Would love to connect and help facilitate that conversation. But what keeps me here? And that's a great question because total transparency, Paul, I would have quit a thousand times. Church planting is the highest high and the lowest low all in the same 24 hour period. From the outsider's perspective, we've enjoyed lots of success at Hope, but man, there have been a lot of dark days. We've had moral failures. We've had economic collapses in our city that devastated our church. And we had a moment where we lost 35% of our church in about six months because they lost their homes and jobs and left town. We literally in the desert had a flood we finally built the building and within 3 months they had the 100 year flood in Las Vegas and our property was underwater million dollars worth of damage on a brand new 15 million dollar campus we've had some dark 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 days and i would have quit a thousand times but here's the thing you can't stop what you didn't start if i'd chosen to do this i'd choose to do something else but two things keep me here number one is the call of god luke 4:43 Man, I go back to it all the time. I must preach the kingdom to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. And until the Lord tells me something else, that's the last thing I know he told me to do. And I don't want to be outside of the center of the will of God for my life. So our yes stays on the table, but right now it's the call of God. And he is faithful. My favorite verse for church planters is 1 Thessalonians 5, 24. Faithful is he who calls you and he will also bring it to pass. He's not just faithful in the calling and then tells you to figure it out. He's faithful in the finishing what he called you to do. So the call of God, that's why when I talk to planters, I tell them, man, the call is everything because they're going to be some days. That's all you got. There's no church. There's no people. There's no place to meet. There's no friend. All you have is the call of God. So the call of God is everything in knowing and staying. And then secondly, I would say is the compassion of Jesus And I mean this by that, when you read in the Gospels where it says Jesus saw the multitudes and then he felt compassion, (laughs) man, over 20 years, and Paul, you know me, I travel a ton, I speak a lot of places, and I've been invited to go back to the Bible Belt a hundred times and be in very comfortable situations, and there's a lot of days that I'm tempted to do that. But every time I'm on that plane coming home and I start thinking about Vegas and I get along with Jesus... And what's on his heart gets back on my heart. Man, I just think about the people of the West and their need for the gospel, the people of Vegas, and and I see the people and I feel compassion. That's not me. It's Christ in me that gives me that. But those two things are everything. The call of God and the compassion of Jesus are what keep here.
0: Amen. This is uh, last question. Vance, thank you for your time and have enjoyed the conversation. Last question. What's one thing you want everyone listening to this podcast to know or to do?
1: Yeah, I would simply say it this way. Everything Jesus desires to do through your life, he'll do out of the overflow of what he's doing in your life. Which means the greatest call on your life is not what you do for Jesus. The greatest call on your life is simply being with Jesus. If you'd ask me 25 years ago. What's the dream? Draw it on a whiteboard. Let me tell you what one city in the world wouldn't have made the board Las Vegas. I'm serious. Like, I would never have even contemplated. I literally didn't even know this city existed. Other than Bob Barker on the Price is Right gave trips out here in the Showcase Showdown. I didn't even know what Vegas was. When Johnny first called me, I had to look it up on a map. I didn't even know where it was located. But I'm here. Because one morning I sat down in September 1999 to just be with Jesus. And I've asked myself this question a thousand times. Man, what if I hadn't been with him that morning? And I don't ask that saying this, man, God needed me to do this. No, God was doing this with or without Vance Fittier. But what would I have missed out on if I hadn't been with him that morning? So the primary call on your life is not to do something for Jesus. The primary call on your life is to be with Jesus. And everything he desires to do through you, he'll do out of the overflow of that.
0: I hope you enjoyed hearing from Vance today. Please pray for him, his work in Vegas as he labors there to reach people for Christ. To hear more conversations like this, please subscribe to this podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening to this episode. Thank you for joining us on Amazon to the Himalayas. This podcast is brought to you by the Billy Graham
1: School at Southern Seminary. Please visit our website, www.sbts.edu BGS, where you can subscribe to the show and learn more. Also, if you have found these conversations helpful, please leave us a comment or a review and encourage your friends to subscribe to the podcast. Be sure to follow us on
0: Facebook, Instagram and Twitter for more. This is Amazon to the Himalayas podcast.